My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Hello and welcome back to the KingCast. My name's Scott Wobbler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. We have an exciting episode today. We always have exciting episodes, Eric. But this one I am particularly hyped about because we are talking about what is my all-time favorite Stephen King short story. Do you have an immediate opinion on that? It is a good one. Okay, fair enough. Did you did you like that sass that I I uh, threw on there? Yeah, yeah. It's I, well, I didn't want you to go off on a tangent, so that's actually perfect for what I had in mind. This week's guest is one of my favorite people. Uh, hired at the tender age of nineteen to work for Nine Inch Nails, he eventually became the band's art director, a position he held for nearly fifteen years. Most recently, he launched his very own dystopian comic book series, High Level, through uh, DC's Vertigo Comics. And today, he's on the KingCast to discuss Crouch End. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Rob Sheridan. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> you're, okay. Uh, your voice sounds a, a, a little different, but uh, I just want what? anyone listening to this <laughs> to know that, that Rob sounds sl- like 2% different than he normally does. What, um, is, what is wrong with my voice? I don't know what this like, microphone's doing to my voice. but It's doing like a very minor, like I'm probably overselling this because most people don't know what you sound like, but it's doing like a very minor, almost like dolphin thing to your voice. Oh, cool. Well, just... Tell everyone that I sound way tougher in real life. Yeah. yeah you sound like does. James Earl Jones in real life. <laughs> yes. uh, how are you enjoying quarantine, Rob? How are you getting along? Um, I'm enjoying uh, March part eight right now. Um, <laughs> this is the endless void of time continues to to drag on. It's been, uh, it's been a, a strange year. I don't need to tell you guys that. Yeah, for real. Uh, anyway, you're here now. So let's get to the king shit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, enough of that bullshit in yeah, real enough life. Of, and enough of the outside human world. Human pain and suffering. Well, yeah, you that- know, a lot of people, we hear from a lot of folks that are like, I like that I can tune into this show and not think about every fucking horrible thing that's going on right now it, for like one hour a week. It's true, though. It, I mean, it, it really does. There, there comes a point where you have to have some stuff like that in your life. Um, I, I have a, like a you know, a weekly chat that I do on my Patreon with people. And like, there's almost not much to talk about other than everything <laughs> right. that's going on in the world. <laughs> right. So you have to kind of like set some like, okay, let's talk about Stephen King stories right now. <laughs> you know, it's, it's <laughs> right. it, it, people need that a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Need the structure. Yeah, Cause, cause nobody's having new life experiences, right? Everybody's <laughs> exactly. Just, yeah. 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 every week is exactly the same. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There is no more. Uh, so what'd you do last weekend? Like there's, that's just that conversation's dead. So anyway, though, uh, we do like to um, keep it to a minimum, but it is also like impossible not to talk about to some degree. So tell us your Stephen King origin story. When did you first uh, come into contact with King and, you know, well, growing up um, as an eighties kid, most of my, you know, early experiences with Stephen King were the movies uh, because there were so many 
adaptations that were huge in the 80s. And a lot of them landed in places in my young life where they were kind of forbidden, you know, like mm-hmm. I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to see Pet Cemetery when it came out or Misery. These were, these were kind of like nebulous, scary things that I couldn't wait to, you know, see when I was at a friend's house or something like that. And then even before I think I probably got to a Stephen King book, some of the like big TV movies had come out. You know, there were a lot of those when I was mm-hmm. growing up. So I kind of really got introduced through the movies in the 80s and early 90s. And it wasn't until um, high school that I was able to catch up on the books. But the the films like left such a deep impression on me because they were such iconic, I think, entry points into horror for me as a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I think King is a gateway drug for a lot of people with horror. You well, know, it's, it it really was because I, I I only knew about that from from the films and and you know when you're growing up you you can't read that stuff you can't see it yet and that was like wow I want to know about these books and then when you read the books it was like wow this is way more horrifying than those TV movies you know that I was finally allowed to see. So like to what age were your parents you know kind of protective of you reading horror? Well, I I grew up with the luxury of a divorced dad who um, would let, <laughs> who would take me to see all the R rated movies. So, um, you know, I think um, I think probably like Misery I saw in the theaters when I was like eight or something like that. Oh, right. Which, on. That might have been the first one, and then I remember seeing Pet Cemetery at a sleepover when I was a kid at a friend's house, and it terrified me. Um, God knows how young I was at that point probably seven or something like that. So it like the, creeped the, into my consciousness over the years, you know? Right. It, yeah, it just, just became a part of the fabric of, of who I am, you know, absorbing this horror in, in strange ways growing up. A movie's never been scarier than when you're like eight, nine, 10 and you're sleeping over at your friend's house and you're watching something at like midnight when everybody's asleep and you're watching it with a group. Like I remember doing that with one of the, like the later, probably Friday, the 13th part five, and like that, I'd watched all those movies before and they never bugged me. But for whatever reason, I think it's just because you're out of your element. You're not in, in your safe zone or whatever. You yeah. know, you're in a strange yeah. house. And like, I, I remember like vividly, like almost seeing Jason standing in there, like the darkness of their backyard, you know, because the, the movie had gotten to me so much. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I remember being a kid in the 80s and I would see like Fangoria magazine on the on the right. bookshelves and there would be like images from like Hellraiser. I, I specifically remember seeing like an image from Nightbreed on the cover and it seemed mm-hmm. like the most scary forbidden thing that I wasn't allowed to. And now you look back on it now and it's like the cheesiest movie. You know? <laughs> but you know, that, that stuff really imprints on you and you can't get through the, the eighties and nineties as a kid without having Stephen King, having a huge influence uh, on your perception of, of horror, you know? Oh, totally. Do you have a, a preferred genre of horror? Um, I'm kind of a sci-fi supernatural horror guy. Personally. Right on. Uh, I'm right less on. of a slasher real world horror thing. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. I prefer the, the weird shit, the monster shit, the sci-fi stuff. I'm with you on that. I, uh, it, in fact, it was only in the last few years that I finally came to terms with the fact that I'm just not a slasher guy. I've been trying for all my life to be a slasher guy. Uh, and it was the new Halloween when the new Halloween came out and I saw it. 
And I was really excited about that because I love the creative team and Halloween was always like, I'm, I'm not precious about any of the slasher franchises. So mm-hmm. I kind of liked what they were doing, sort of, you know, going back and undoing what they had done in some of the other movies to just sort of pick up the story and, you know, take another at bat with it. And then I saw the new Halloween and was like, well, it's good. You know, it's, it's really well made. That's a, that's a very solid slasher movie, but I just felt nothing while I was watching it. And it's like, man, maybe it's time I just admit to myself that I just, I just don't have a lot of use for these movies. I like slashers. I think you have to, it's kind of like what you were saying about being turned on to certain things at certain times in the eighties, you grew up around slashers. You know, I, I always preferred a Freddy Krueger style thing. And it sounds like you guys are in the same camp where it's more supernatural. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it's creepy, it's trippy. Uh, but at the same time, I was also like discovering like some, some of my favorite, like bizarro cheap slasher movies, uh, and for whatever reason, they just like had an effect on me. Like I remember watching sleepaway camp when I was 12 or 13 years old and like just thinking that was like the most fun, ridiculous, crazy <laughs> movie ever. And, uh, you know, looking back on it now, it, saying that you watch that movie at, at age 12 or 13 is, it, it's a little, uh, crazy in, in today times, but back then, you know, you just pick up whatever was in the video store. Yeah, Totally. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I'm not a fan of slashers necessarily, but definitely I think for me, my imagination was opened up a lot more by, say, Friday the 13th or something like that, you know, and and I think those are the those are the King stories that always stuck with me were the ones that were a lot more supernatural and and brought in elements of um, it, it, it's something that couldn't happen in the real world. And that's what excited me. And that's what opened up my, my imagination. And that this story we're talking about today is a perfect example. Yeah. This, this is sort of an interesting case for, for the show, because you and I have talked a couple times about you coming on as a guest and we're trying to figure out like maybe which uh, one would be a good fit for you. At some point it, it occurred to me to, to suggest uh crouch end. Uh, I thought that you would, really respond to um, the short story, which you had not read at that point. And I knew if you responded to the short story, you would be particularly unhappy with the adaptation (laughs) that that resulted from it, which would probably result in an entertaining episode. So uh, let's check my math. First of all, um, how did you feel about the short story? Did you read it or did you listen to the audiobook version? Uh, on your recommendation, I listened to the Tim Curry audiobook. Um, excellent, which, which was excellent, and you you managed to nail it somehow because I, I didn't know what the story was about, and I I didn't know that it was about um, the thin places, which is something that I've been obsessed with for a few years. Reading the the kind of folklore about this and and the origins of it, so that was like right in my vein of supernatural horror. Yeah, you mentioned this. Can you, um, or like just when we were we were talking uh, yesterday? Can you can you talk can you talk a little bit more about the idea of thin places, um, not as they pertain to Stephen King, but just in general? Yeah, so I, I kind of became obsessed with these a few years ago, and, and I've always wanted to like make something out of them, but I wasn't sure what yet. Um, and I first got tuned into it from this folklore that came out of a, a Scottish town where they have this thing called the dog suicide bridge. 
And I hate that. I hate everything about that. I never <laughs> want to hear dog and suicide in the same sentence. But And then bridge raises all kinds yeah, of questions. Yeah, it's, it's everything about it sucks. It's terrible. But it's a real thing. And the, the local folklore around it, it's, it's this bridge that notoriously over the years, dogs jump off and they die because it's a high up bridge. Yeah, seriously. How high, how, well, how tall is the bridge? It's I don't know. It's tall enough to, to you die if <laughs> you jump off it. Yeah, it's just like an it's a really old stone bridge in this little Scottish town, and it's notoriously known as this dog suicide bridge because for reasons that you know there have been a lot of stories about the dogs keep jumping off it, and so the 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 old folklore around it is that one of the thin places exists around this bridge. And the kind of more cheerful way that they have talked about it is <laughs> this. <laughs> no, no. The cheerful way they approach the dog suicide bridge. Hear me out here. Hear me out here. <laughs> the, upside the, to everything. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm serious. They, they have actually come up with a, an upside to it, which is that this particular thin place is a kind of window into heaven. And you know, you know, dogs being able. To, I'm not, I'm not making this up. The dogs being able to perceive things that we can't. They see a shining, beautiful light on the, you know, as they look out on this bridge, and they think, "I want to go to that place," and they jump into it, but they can't pass through to the thin place, so they just die. Right, and. To me, that doesn't sound like something heaven would do if heaven was good, you know. Right. So that I was going like, to say, like, it's like you the do... devil's trick to me, but this is how they make themselves yeah. feel good about it. That the dogs thought they were going to heaven, but it turns <laughs> out they were just dying. But most of the thin places, as discussed, are are a lot more about like their interdimensional gateways or their portals into hell. But um, you know, some of the folklore is about how they might be portals into heaven, if you want to believe in that. Um, but th- there's some more like um, buzzkill Scully explanations for why these dogs are actually doing this, but there's no need to get into that. It's it's a gateway to hell. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I am curious. Like, why? What are what are the what's the rational explanation? the The one that I remember reading was something about um, local minks in the area and their scent being on this bridge around it, and hmm. the the high walls of the bridge making it difficult for the dogs to understand that it's really deep on the other side of the walls of the bridge. Uh, and so they yeah. smell this mink and they go after it. You know, it's... Uh, so they go jumping over the edge. Not yeah. realizing that, that it's a long way down. Yeah, so it's got high barriers on the side. So they can't tell the distance and they think there's some animal that they're interested in on the other side. I was going to say, maybe they had a lot of money in the stock market. And... <laughs> They invested in the wrong stocks. <laughs> or maybe it's a trick from the devil and it's an interdimensional portal. You know, the, the idea of like thin spots in folklore uh, reminds me of um, what are they fucking called? Um, they're not time loops, but uh, it's something along those lines. And there's a place in uh, in England that's apparently like notorious for this. Where people have said, like, you know, they're walking up a street in this little town and they'll turn a corner and suddenly all the cars are like from the 40s or some shit, you know, and they've suddenly just walked into, uh, you know, a previous point on the timeline in the same town. 
And then they'll sort of run around frantically trying to figure out what the fuck is going on and then get, you know, going spit back out into our world. And they're telling people this story and no one believes them. I don't know if I believe those stories, but it's a fascinating thing to imagine. Like if, you know, if there are these thin spots in space and time and you could sort of breach them, uh, that would be pretty rad. I think it would be terrifying in the moment, but also what an experience, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, all the way around the it's, it's just a cool mythology. It's a cool idea that there's that time and space and reality can be like a molasses that, that has certain areas where it's gooier than other places, you know, and, and the effects that that can have on you. If you walk into one, it, it's ripe with opportunities. And, uh, and this story is a great one. Eric, do you want to tell the people what the this story is about if they haven't read it yet? Yeah, I mean, this one's a little bit uh, uh, different from our normal episode because you can imagine that a lot of people maybe haven't read Carrie, but they've seen the movie. You know, so a lot of pe- a lot of times we jump right into this as if everybody's read everything, uh, you know, or knows what the the plot is and all that. Um, uh, maybe maybe a little bit too much we do that, but. Uh, Crouchend was adapted in a in a 2006 uh, TNT series based off of Nightmares and Dreamscapes, but that wasn't like highly regarded or really well known or really well watched at the time. For uh, good reason. <laughs> for, for for many, there, there's some good episodes in there, but like this one is not one of the good ones, unfortunately. Uh, but like for, for me personally, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, like uh, I reread the uh, the story leading up to this. And I read my old battered hardcover that I had, and this came out. Uh, what was it, ninety three? Scott, about, do you remember? Yeah. yeah. And so <clears throat> this is one of the first King books that I actually bought new. Uh, and I remember uh, I had moved to Texas that year, and so this this book had been all over uh, the country with me. Because then you know what, like what happens with the you know a lot of. Uh, kids, you know, I guess when they move is that for that first year, that first summer, you fly a lot because then you go back and visit your grandparents over here. And like I visited my grandparents in Arkansas and I visited my other grandparents in California. And then I had like a, you know, an, another relative in New Mexico. And like, and so that summer I just traveled a lot. And I remember lugging this giant, giant book around with me and I still have it. And it's this, uh, uh, crazy collection of short stories. Um, this one uh, in particular was affecting then, and, it, and it's still very effective now. Uh, it's it's essentially King's take on doing a straight up Lovecraft story. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not set in New England, <laughs> oddly enough. It's set set in uh, London, so it's a little bit more along the lines of like Quatermass, I guess. I, I was really taken aback by those uh, elements of it going in blind on this because right. I wasn't familiar with the story. And like for this, you know, suburban London tale that's extremely Lovecraftian. Like I was, it, it, it didn't, if I didn't know that it was a Stephen King story, I might've, you might've been con- able to convince me otherwise, you know? Yeah, right. totally. It, well, and it's, it's funny because <clears throat> he, he sets almost everything he writes in New England, which is Lovecraft country, right? You know, then he sets this one in, in London. The basic story is two American tourists are in London uh, they leave their kids at the hotel and then they go to uh, this little London suburb called Crouch End to visit one of the the husband's like work pals or something. Um, and uh, when they do, we find out pretty quickly that that uh, 
crouch end is one of the thin spots that we've been talking about. And the other side, the other dimension is, is a very Lovecraftian dimension and uh, they cross over and, and experience a bunch of crazy stuff. And only the wife comes back. And most of the story is told through the wife at the police station, trying to recount her story. And then we get a lot of flashback, but what's crazy is it's not like it's Lovecraft adjacent. Like, you know, Cthulhu is, is a uh, name dropped, you know, right off the bat, you know, there's a, you know, bunch of mentions of, of uh, stuff that I, I still, I couldn't pronounce, you know, if, if you held a gun to my head, but I know is, is, uh, you know, directly Lovecraftian. And a lot, uh, but of, mo- a lot of apostrophes, lot, lots of vowels where there shouldn't be. And, you know, and absence of vowels where they should be, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, but what's crazy is, is you can almost feel this as, as King's exercise into doing a different style for himself. And, and it's a very successful exercise. It really does feel like a short story that you would read in a collection of like maybe lesser known Lovecraft stories. It's, it's uh, totally, you know, it deals with insanity. It deals with, you know, that great kind of unknown. He does something in here real quick that I want to point out that I, I love to death because I, I adore the tone of Lovecraft stuff, but it's so funny to me when you go back and read like at the mountains of madness and, or any of his, his famous stories. And every time it gets to the time that he has to describe the creature, uh, he always goes, I, I would describe it to you, but I can't because it would make you insane. No, you can't. No words can do it justice, that kind of thing. And I'm just like, that's super lazy. You know, you, and I, I have that feeling every time. But what's great that King does here is he has a moment uh, where the husband uh, goes behind a hedge and uh, encounters a creature and the wife can barely kind of see through the hedge and, and, you know, makes out just like shapes and glimpses of stuff, but essentially comes out, the guy comes out and just doesn't want to talk about, you know, what he saw, but it was obviously driving him crazy, uh, which is such a, a perfect Lovecraft touch right there. It's one of the scariest parts of the fucking story. Right. You know, it's like she sees like a figure that it's like human shaped, but just solid black. I think he describes it as like the antithesis of light or something like that. Right. You know, it's, and the fact that you don't see it, that, and that, um, Lonnie, the husband comes back through the hedge. He's got like some sort of like gunk on him or some shit. It's, it, it's, it's the, it's the sort of detail that just fires your imagination. Like, what is that thing? Why was it in a hole in the center of this yard? What did it get on him? The whole story is like that though. It's, it's, her sort of like wandering into these terrible interactions with what is quite obviously like a Lovecraftian dimension. And there are no answers for anything, you know, it's just weird shit. Like why does the, why does the little kid they encounter have a weird little claw hand, you know, a little (laughs) flipper hand? Uh, We don't know, you know, but it's an unsettling detail. At the beginning, it's this kind of almost dry London police procedural. Mm -hmm. And, and it gradually gets kind of subtly weirder and weirder and weirder right. and weirder. And it's that slow creep that makes it work for me. Totally. Like when she sees the, she sees some bikers and their faces turn into rats. She sees a, a newspaper headline that says like 30 dead and underground horror and, and is trying to process that. It's you're right. It, you know, the whole story is just building on those details until by the end of it, you know, the person that survives the story is uh, 
gone completely fucking mad. And they're just like in a closet mm-hmm. in their house, just like writing on the walls over and over again. It is um, <laughs> an incredible detail that the people who made the adaptation decided to just leave out, which <laughs> like it's an incredible scene that you just like is sitting right there. Yeah. Well, which would made a great episode, a great ending to the TV episode. Yeah. Well, you know, what's the, the detail in there that like freaked me out the most was that King described her as entering the closet by like waddling on her knees for whatever reason, just that image of a grown woman, you know, like knee walking slowly into a closet to, to write a, you know, the, what was it? Like the goat with a thousand children or whatever, you know, whatever that creepy ass line was that you would just write over and over in the back of her closet. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That whole thing's very unsettling, but you're right. There is an escalation, you know, little little things like, you know, seeing a a deformed cat and, you know, seeing the kids who look normal at a distance. And it's not until you get closer that, you know, that you see his, his clawed hand and, and they're, they're like, they're mischievous kids, but they're also like, you know, clearly little fucks. And yeah, yeah, it's like, there's like a part where the kids come out and they're just like taunt. They, they kind of show up throughout the story and sort of taunt her when they finally like the kids are finally like they're fucking done playing games, you know, and, yeah. you know, they're going to throw down like they're like chanting and talking like summoning the blind piper and all this shit. And you're like, what the fuck is going on? It's such it's so good. This is hands down my favorite King short story of any of the in any of the books, like you name it. And uh I don't think he's ever written a short story that tops this. And a thing that I want to point out before we really get into the, uh, the adaptation is that the, the, the short story itself is great and I recommend that everyone read it. But if you can get a hold of the audiobook version of this, that Tim Curry reads that we mentioned earlier in the show, it is incredible. This is like, this is Tim Curry essentially performing this, uh, this short story, you know, there's, there's voices and there's so much passion put into it. It's, it's one of my favorite readings. We, we listened to it again the other night, like in, in preparation for this episode. And I was blown away by it all over again. It's just, it's scary as shit. You know, he really adds another, another layer to what was already a really effective piece of writing. I mean, Tim Curry is exactly who you want to be reading a, a bedtime horror story to you, especially one that takes place uh, just outside London. You know, his, his voice is perfect for it. Yeah, for real. Also, though, I, it was really funny to me when he, like, overdid some of the American accents sometimes <laughs> yeah. in an almost condescending way. You know, there's, like, <laughs> yeah. there's an old joke that when, like, um, British people do American accents, they sound always like John Wayne. And he kind of had that, like, I'm an American citizen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it seemed intentionally condescending at times, which was funny to me. I think it is probably intentional because it's also a story about, you know, one of the one of the like kind of running little sub themes in it is that it's these these two Americans sort of blundering into a foreign country. They don't really know what they're doing. the The husband character in particular is very headstrong and just sort of, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna get this done. Uh, and you know, fucking dies as a, as a result of that. Yeah. Bumbling American tourist arrogance and all that. Yeah. So I think if, if you're picking up on that, which, which I think you probably are correct to be doing, I'm guessing that that was intentional and oh yeah, man, it's just really good shit. So then some years after I heard that audio book for the first time, and that was the first experience I had with this. My parents 
uh, got me the audiobooks for Christmas, the year Nightmares and Dreamscapes came out. So that was like instantly my favorite King short story. It was for many years. And then I heard like uh, whenever they did the uh, Nightmares and Dreamscapes TV show, I guess it was 2006. I heard that Crouch End was going to be one of the episodes and was like, holy shit, like that's amazing. Like what a great idea because it wouldn't really fill the runtime on like a feature film, but it could definitely fill an hour. And I was so excited. I ended up catching up with it later. I just bought the whole set on DVD or whatever when it came out. And I'll tell you what, like uh, the Nightmares and Dreamscapes TV series starts off with an episode called Battleground, which is another sort of obscure Stephen King short story. That episode is completely dialogue free and it involves William Hurt fighting some toy soldiers in an, ap- uh, in an apartment. It fucking rules. So I was like, oh, my God, like this is this is going to be great. Like this is the level of of talent that they're they're bringing to the show. You got William Hurd in it. You've got Brian Henson was was directing it. It looked great. And then the second episode is Crouch End. And the Crouch End adaptation is one of my least favorite (laughs) King uh, adaptations. They butchered this fucking thing. It is there's no way around describing how bad this is. I, I was shocked to discover that it was made in 2006. It, it had such huge 1999 energy to it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Right down to the digital effects that are in it, which are kind of few and far between. But Oh, the cat. The cat <laughs> and the uh, the tentacles. There's a part where oh, the God. tentacles eventually erupt out of a street, and it's just three tentacles. <laughs> they, they, can, they only had time for three. And um, <laughs> it looks like... Like, do you remember when the mummy or like the Scorpion King came out and uh-huh. like what the rock looked like? And it was like sort of a it, it was as though like someone had put the rock into like a brundle pod with a PS1. <laughs> and what came out was like this super smooth digital abomination that looked sort of like the rock, but it, mostly it just looked terrible. Uh, that again, was the again intense 1999 energy. For <laughs> yeah. The, the effects. Yeah. Eric, how did you first see this episode? Uh, here's the thing is I was, uh, you know, kind of at the height of my reviewing powers, you know, at, at Ain't It Cool when this came out. And I remember them sending me review uh, screeners of this, but I, I'm almost 100% sure they were TNT was sending it out as VHS copies. <laughs> and so I know I must have seen it then, but I have In no 2006? idea. 2006? Yeah, yeah. It might it might be better on VHS actually. Uh I I must have seen it then, but I had no memory of it when I re- rewatched it for this. And it they make some mind-boggling decisions like what they do with the cat. I I still don't understand because because <laughs> the way that it's described in the book is it's not like a cat with half of its face missing and it's got a zombie eye or whatever that they decided to go for here in the book. It's just like it's supposed to be that early on, you know, just things things are slightly off. There's a cute cat at the window, but, you know, he's got scarring and his eye is milky with with a cataract or whatever. It's mm-hmm. cloudy. And the cat become serves as an omen throughout the story. And like pretty much every time the cat shows up or she sees the cat in places it shouldn't be, you know, it's, it's in a shop window in one spot and then it's in a completely different window, two blocks away, you know, that kind of thing. That's really unsettling and describing it as something that could exist in a real world thing. You can picture, you've seen, you know, all those awful 
<laughs> you know, Sarah McLaughlin, you know, these animals are being treated badly, <laughs> you know, things. And I mean, th- th- there are, you know, cat- Sarah McLaughlin you know, you've, you've, wants to talk to you about the dog suicide bridge. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sarah, Sarah McLaughlin, uh, have you listened to our Lord and Savior uh, Cthulhu lately? Um, n- but no, but it's like, you know, I, I can't imagine that there isn't an acting animal that doesn't have, you know, a similar kind of deformity where they didn't have to, I don't know. Like, how would you describe it? It's like the eyes too, too big. Like half of the face is gone. Like the musculature is there. Right. Is kind of how they went with it, but that doesn't make any, any, it's such a small detail. And I don't know why I'm harping specifically on that, but that's the thing that like, I instantly was like, you know, these, the acting, the acting's not good. Claire Forlani doesn't do a good job. Uh, the guy who plays her husband doesn't do a good job. Uh, you know, but it's like passable, you know, bad TV. And then when that happened, I was just like, that's such the easiest fucking thing that you could have done. You know, e- even the if cat you just looks like, like the, the cat looks like fucking Kano from Mortal Kombat. <laughs> or, or like, right. or like, or like if, uh, like in the term, like Terminator, when he like gets half his face blown off, you know, right. that's what, that's what the cat looks like. It doesn't, it's, it's way worse than that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, well, yeah, it's not rendered with that level of skill and craftsmanship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, this is quite clearly yeah, a thing what, they put on a cat's face. It did. It looked immediately like a, like a cyborg cat. You know? right. Yeah. And it, it well, does it, rob it of, of that. Um, well, well it, I mean, the the cat's one example, but like from the get go, the the thing that was my favorite thing about the story that that slow, creeping dread that escalated right. was completely removed from um <laughs> from this adaptation where like they couldn't even wait to get to the town of Crouch End before you had multiple cab drivers literally screaming at these people. This place is evil. It's the thin places. You shouldn't go there. No, no, no. You you understand, right? It's really bad. Like just berating the audience with the idea that this place is evil before there's been any ability to have it creep in. And it's just like it's it's a sledgehammer, whereas opposed to the uh, the story is so subtle in that regard. The first cab driver, I would like to uh, make a note of this, uh, is a Jamaican guy. And mm. it's it's funny because well, I don't know how funny it is, but they they approach this guy's cab and they're like, yeah, we're we're trying to get to Crouch End. And he sort of gives them a little spiel for, you know, like five, ten seconds about how you don't want to go to Crouch End. It's bad. Fuck you. I'm out. And he takes off, you know, and he's doing this in a Jamaican accent. And immediately, like, you know, the wife is like, what did he say? And Lonnie, the husband, is like, uh. Well, I couldn't understand with all that reggae music going on and that accents or some shit like that. And I'm like, no, no, he was perfectly no, easy to understand. What the fuck are you it, talking about? He literally it said, was, between the Jamaican accent and the reggae, I missed something. <laughs> Lonnie, the guy that plays Lonnie, um, I hope he's not listening to this. Uh, if, <laughs> if you are, please, please turn this off now. But uh, it's just absolutely terrible just a black hole of, of charisma or personality. And the script sort of calls on him from time to time to have a little personality. Like there's a scene where he's like pretending to be a, like a fucking brave warrior, or like a knight or something <laughs> for the wife. And it just well, it falls. Made, it made him a lot more of a character than he was in the, in the story. You know, that's true. It, it put a lot more weight on him. I felt. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. Absolutely. 
You know, well, the, I mean, the st- look, the short story is all through the wife's eyes. And then you're also getting it as sort of a flashback that's being told by, you know, these two cops, right? So perspective of the the whole short story is is through her. And and that's correct. The the adaptation is more of a two-hander with with her and the husband. But it cannot be overstated how how I would say miscast, but this this role didn't really require a lot. He's just bad. <laughs> the guy that the guy that plays him is bad and the episode suffers greatly as a result of it because, you know, he's got a lot of fucking lines and oh, you just don't like him. There's so many bad decisions going on around him that it's hard to even I, I don't even know if I'd be willing to judge him as an actor based on this because the I mean the whole thing I mean it it made goosebumps look like the exorcist with with how how corny it was in terms of just I mean it seemed like they filmed it at noon on a sunny day and then just put like a bad filter on top of it all mm. the CGI eyeball and the tentacles and every possible production decision they could have made it certainly didn't give any actor the ability to to pull something out of it you know but claire forlani she's the uh she plays the wife i like claire forlani i think uh, claire forlani is um not a bad actress but there are some line readings in this that you've got to wonder why they were even left in it seems like whatever happened here was a failure mostly at the top and it sort of cascaded downhill as it went you know, you have to deal with the fact that they've they've butchered the story because it it, it only passingly resembles the the short story, and then you've got to deal with you know the casting decisions and then sort of the weak script, and then there's the special effects, and then there's you know it's it's sort of everything. Even the aesthetic of this, I didn't like. It specifically describes these like color out of space style Lovecraftian colors that are that yes kind of that kind of um, speak to like the warping of the reality, you know, almost like um, Northern lights or something. And, and mm-hmm. you kind of want that cosmic horror feel to come out of it. And like I was saying, the, the entire episode seems to take place in noon with a weird, you know, vignette filter on it, <laughs> trying to act like it's creepy, right. but it's, it's but just it- clearly sunny out and it never gets to that, um, that weird dusky, colorful Lovecraftian feel. Also, Crouch End does not look at every point when they're out in the streets, they look clean. They look like they've been cleared of people because they're obviously filming on streets somewhere, <laughs> you know, but yeah. just deserted is not it, necessarily frightening. Like the, if it's a no, bad it, area of town, you know, it should. It look doesn't. Good. I've spent a lot of time walking around um, kind of weird suburban areas of, of um, the surrounding parts of London because we played some weird um shows and some strange venues around there and we spent some time doing photo shoots and walking around and there's so many places like that i could picture that bridge when i was reading the story i I feel like i've walked through that kind of tunnel in those older parts uh you know of the areas surrounding london and i could picture how creepy it was because there are areas like that where it feels like there's no one around even though you're kind Mm -hmm. of are technically in a place where there, there are people living but but this adaptation, I never felt for one moment like you couldn't just turn a corner and be at a Tesco, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They fucked up real early on by throwing out the someone telling a story structure. Yeah. Because they kind of insinuate it and then they just drop it completely until until the end, right? Um, and 
and you know something that was so strong about the book and it's also very it's a lovecraftian trope you know so much of you know his stories are always told in journal form or you know an after the fact retelling of what happened Mm -hmm. and uh what they do very well in the story is they set up those two cops that are uh, interviewing Doris, the wife, you know, one of them has been around for a while and like oddly in like knows that she's telling the truth. And there's like a younger one that doesn't really believe it and, and thinks she's just, you know, kind of offer rocker and, and all that stuff. But there's a dynamic in there that is, is so much more interesting than just, you know, spending, 15 minutes with a, a newlywed couple, you know, that, that they give us here. It's like, we got to make these, these two people, people we care about. And, uh, uh, it was really and, weird. It almost felt like a rom-com at the beginning, right? You know, like, like their, their jokes about their relationship and stuff like that. And like the guy wouldn't ask for directions and she, yeah. you know, she was just like, Oh, all you do is work. You don't care about our honeymoon. Like it just, <laughs> the, the focus was so off compared to, like you said, like that, procedural element that started off the the story and when i started reading the story or listening to the story in my case i just kept thinking like crouch end would be an amazing tv series like an x-files supernatural procedural with these like two cops at the center of it right Mm. and just like weird shit happening all the time but gradually over the course of it they start going insane you know, perhaps the younger one going more insane than the other, you know, just from the things that happen in this town. I just got this immediate vibe of like this guy who'd seen all this shit and this young, this young rookie cop, like it had such a great dynamic of things that go on in this town and they've been going on long before this. Yeah, that would be kind of cool. I think it would be kind of cool too, if they both, rather than going mad, like over the course of the series, they just sort of just became kind of unflappable about it. Every week, it's like someone comes into the police station. It's like, my fucking daughter, you know, she she got sucked into a sewer drain by a bunch of tentacles. Or like there was a kid with a flipper baby <laughs> hand. And then fucking th- then a, then this happened. And, th- and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like fucking we know. We know. <laughs> you know, but they got to like go out and do something about it. But those those efforts sort of prove fruitless because you can't. That's a- Sounds like me reading the news every morning this year. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Things got even worse today. Cool. And that's one of the details I like about the short story is that, you know, at the end, after the telling of the, the main tale is done, the one cop goes outside for a cigarette and then the other cop follows him out. And one of them fucking ends up like sucked into to Crouch End. You know, he goes walking up the street looking for his partner. Or, I don't know if they're partners, but and co-workers, um, co-workers, colleagues. And uh, he just disappears. It's like, it's such a great detail. Just knowing like this shit's just going to keep happening in crouch. End. you know, it's not specific to Doris. And I don't know. I wish he would. I, w- I would, I would read a whole book of, of tales from crouch End. you know, that's what I'm saying. It would make a yeah. good series, you know, as an ongoing thing with different, different stories. Yeah. I'd also like to point out that it is such a boring change to have them be newlyweds versus, you know, just kind of a a comfortable couple. Uh, Because Mm -hmm. one of the creepiest things to me is it's not just these, you know, young brash Americans or whatever that are lost. Like they make a point of saying they have kids and the kids are in the hotel room. So whenever they're in, 
crouch end and they can't get out there's a whole other level of horror of like if we're stuck here forever you know we're you know our kids are by themselves you know you know what i mean like there's this whole whole other like aspect to it it would be like uh, remaking poltergeist and just fucking having you know having the the freelings be a new newlywed couple just experiencing ghost shit in their house it's not nearly as affecting you know what i mean yeah totally and what do you say to your kids you get back to the hotel room one of the other parents is missing. You're like, uh, well, we got lost, first of all. And then, you know, there was a kid with a flipper baby hand. And then, uh, <laughs> then a some cat. rat face bikers. Then, <laughs> yeah, like fucking, what do you tell your kids? Well, he did explain that she's from Wisconsin, so elevators are a mystery to her. So, <laughs> yeah, oh, God. like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> she's never this, as you know, in the in the state of Wisconsin, there are no buildings over one story tall. No. Uh, well, and, and certainly they, not tall enough of, to necessitate an elevator. All right, they, they go out of their way to like give her that that quirk of being very superstitious, uh, and you'd think that that would come into play at literally any point pa- past the first act, but it doesn't. You know, it's like yeah. if they're gonna go, you know, this isn't the adaptation that none of that's in the the book that I remember, but uh, like you would think that that might be her key out or the reason why she's not you know, she essentially abides by a rule that is a legit rule and not a superstition. And, you know, in the, this other dimension they're in the Lovecraftian dimension, something that would make sense for the setup, but now it's just something to go. Isn't my wife, you know, kind of, kind of nutty. She doesn't know how elevators work. <laughs> this stupid broad that I brought all the way from America can't even picture a moving box. Don't even suggest I, it. I just want to meet with my business colleague. Gosh darn it. We have a meeting about a very important account. You wouldn't yes. understand. It has numbers involved. You're I from can't Wisconsin. ask for directions because he'll think I'm a cuck. <laughs> How do y'all feel about cosmic horror in general as a genre? You know, Lovecraft is sort of the the, the godfather of that still a viable genre you don't see it put to to film or tv much because it's hard to capture that thing that eric was talking about earlier where lovecraft is sort of like listen this monster you don't even want to know what this monster looks like it would fuck you up for life you know (laughs) that that unknowability is a thing that is part and parcel of that genre but film and tv are very literal so but that aspect of it makes me fascinated by the idea of a really good ad- adaptation of of this being done because so much of the descriptions of it is this idea of like, did I see that or did I not? It's those things that could happen in the shadows, those things when you're in, you know, some kind of impaired state and, and you're questioning your own sanity. Like, mm-hmm. that's a really tricky thing to capture in a visual medium. And I think done right, it would be fascinating to try and see if they could pull that off, you know? You know what was a recently good example of that effect? And it's not a cosmic horror uh, feel at all, but uh, Haunting of Hill House. By the by, having so many of the ghosts just kind of in the background in scenes where you might not even see them. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yes. You get that same feeling of like, especially if you catch it right before a cut. And you're like, did I just see what I think I saw? You know, like that's really the only way, uh, you know, it did that very well, you know, as well when in the library scene 
with mm-hmm. Ben Han- Hanscom's there and, and like the, that old lady like turns towards camera, but she's so deep in the background and looking really creepy that if your focus is on, you know, what the camera's focus is on, you don't even see it, you know, but when you do see it, it like instantly gets under your skin. I, I love stuff like that. I love yeah. those little details of the background where something seems to warp and you yourself as the viewer question, if you saw it. Right. And, and if you as the viewer are questioning that, then you're already starting to enter the mind of the person who's, you know, at the core of the story questioning what they're seeing in the reality. And, and that, that slow creep of that type of effect is great. It's, it's different than the question that you originally asked Scott, which was cosmic horror. Um, but it's, I feel like there's an intersection between this kind of horror and like full on Colorado space cosmic horror that could be interesting to see. I, I like cosmic horror a bit, but I it has to be handled correctly because I think that the randomness and the leaning on tone for so much of it can be used as a crutch by people who aren't as detail oriented as they need to be to get through that. And I think that it's very easy to use you know, the, the crazy randomness as a, an excuse to just do something weird without there being, you know, any sort of logic, even if it's internal to the character or internal to the movie, I can see, you know, obviously as this, this adaptation of Crouch is a, a prime example, it's like you can be given all the right material, but if you don't have a deft hand at it, uh, it's just going to be either, you know, uh, a cock tease where you don't see anything uh, or you're going to make it literal. And when you make it literal, it's, it's silly. You know, I, the scene in the, in the novel when, or in the the short story, when, when she's seeing all the, like the Shoggoth, you know, style names of the stores and stuff is really effective and creepy. And in the, the, they shoot it and they shoot it pretty literally in the TV adaptation for it. Uh, and it's and it's just silly. It looks dumb. It looks like cheap, cheap prop, you know, store placements. You know, it's like right. It, it, I think I think you have to have a, a fairly deft hand to pull off cosmic horror. Um, I, I think it's trickier than than you might uh, or somebody might think. Uh, it's definitely got the better of uh, whoever made this <laughs> the, this movie. I think it's gotten the better of most filmmakers. You know, um, most Lovecraft adaptations just don't work. You need someone that understands cosmic horror implicitly to put cosmic horror on the screen and have it work. There's a psychological element of this that um, is really important to it, where there's there's so much of that vague space in between what someone is thinking they're experiencing and what they might be experiencing. And, and that subtlety, like we were talking about earlier would probably make the cosmic element more effective when it finally presented itself visually, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I was saying earlier that I didn't think that this story could support an entire feature, but now I'm sort of, as we're talking about this, I'm, I think I'd like to walk that back because I think that if you got the right filmmaker attached to it and maybe if you padded out the story in little in, in such a way that, well, it depends on what you add to it, you know, to fill the runtime, right? Assuming uh, assuming that that was handled at the script level, if you had the director that could um, could execute it, it could maybe sustain a feature film. And I'm thinking that uh, Jonathan Glazer, the guy that directed Under the Skin and Birth, mm. he's a British filmmaker. He's, you know, they, 
you know, every other fucking trailer nowadays calls whoever the director is a visionary. You know, uh, <laughs> 90% of the time, that's not accurate. It's just somebody that made a movie with a lot of special effects in it was their last movie. And a lot of that shit is just handled by the effects houses. Anyway, well, this Gla- guy. Glazer goes way back. I mean, he was a he was a great music video director. Fuck yeah. Uh, from he's, the heyday of music videos. He's, he's, I love Glazer. Glazer's like a guy where, where someone's like, well, who should direct this? And I'm like, fucking Jonathan Glazer regardless of what the project is, because even if he's a bad fit for it, it would be weird as fuck. And I want to see that, but he could, he could do this. I think he could do like a crouch end movie. I'd watch the shit out of that, but that guy makes a movie every what? Six, seven years. So probably never going to see that, but it, I, I suppose it could be done. Another important aspect to doing this right is, is you have to capture insanity, right? And, and that, that is, like a, a key cornerstone component to any mm-hmm. Lovecraftian style thing is you have all the successful ones, even the ones that aren't based on Lovecraft, but are playing that same universe, like uh, in the mouth of madness. Yeah. 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 Uh, jumps to that mind. That one works. That one works for sure. That one works. And, and it, uh, it there's two, two things that, that like instantly scream Lovecraft to me. What uh, my, okay. Three things. Cause you have to throw in tentacles. Uh, so tentacles is one, an insane tone, you know, the, the slow descent into insanity is, is another cornerstone. And then mm-hmm. there's the, uh, fucking with time. And we touched on that a little yes. bit in, uh, for crouch end. Uh, but that's always, whether it's, uh, you know, in structure of, you know, somebody talking about, you know, something that had already happened, or maybe it's about to happen. And we, you know, we realize that the narrative's all fractured, it gives a very displaced feeling just structurally that way. But then there's also the literal, uh, you know, I, I looked at my watch and they say this in, in the short, I looked at my watch and it was, you know, four thirty, And then I looked at my watch and 10 minutes later and it was six thirty. you know, it's stuff like that. It, it, it all like builds into a tone that is very distinctly cosmic horror uh, and specifically Lovecraft. A good adaptation uh, handles all three of those. Well, it, it's a really tricky territory as as this adaptation proves that you know if you, if you're not careful with it it just looks ridiculous i i remember a really bad mushroom trip from back in 2002 <laughs> <laughs> where reality and surfaces became taffy to me they were stretching and and, and gooey and and didn't make any sense as as normal solid substances and that only made sense to me <laughs> to, right. to try and convey that level of how insane that felt to trying to convey that visually without it just looking ridiculous is really tricky. And, and I feel like that's kind of that line where you, where you dive into when you're trying to explain a reality that is dripping away from anything that makes any kind of sense. Color out of space did this really well. I think. Yeah. Uh, Richard Stanley's color out of space. It, it fucked with the time thing. It introduced things into the story that, you know, didn't make sense um, and didn't bother explaining them to you. It's the full uh, just indifference of an alien intelligence sort of having its way with like a, a specific area of our world. And then ultimately would that space would get much bigger and bigger. But um, Richard Stanley totally understood that, you know, that's that's the guy mm-hmm. you want handling your your Lovecraft adaptations. And, and luckily he's doing a, a whole trilogy of them for, uh, for Spectre vision, which, Oh boy, am I looking forward to those? Me too. Yeah. It's going to be good shit. Do we have anything else? Uh, we want to add to, to crouch end. 
the the only thing that that uh, I kind of have on my like mental checklist that I uh, of stuff I wanted to praise in the short story was the use of uh, slaughter Tawan uh, yeah. and kind of the explanation of what a Tawan is and how it's an old druid ritual site. It is something that is handled so well in the story because uh, that's one of those things where it's one of the cops is like you know recite recounting what the 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 woman said and and uh they're like town loan not not town she said town and like one of the other cops there was just like oh no like well that would be a really bad place if that's what you <laughs> yeah. know she actually meant and he's like what and he's like you know it's an old term or whatever you know for a, 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 sacri- a ritual sacrifice insight or whatever and and it like hits you at just the right point because then that's like underlining the point in the story where they're in like the worst of the worst and you know scenario and then in the the tv series you know they just yeah it's it's got the same sledgehammer approach as the rest of it it just like it's it it's so out loud compared to how it was in the story they put a lot of that dialogue from the book that comes out of the cops into the mouths of other characters in the show you know yeah and and that makes it that makes it so much worse somehow Mm -hmm. you know it it makes it feel so much like everything's being explained to you Um, rather than you discovering it. Well, yeah. I mean, the cops would have a reason to be uh, discussing this in relation to this woman's case. A cabbie that you met 30 seconds ago isn't going to start volunteering shit about a town, you know? Like, it's yeah. just it's it's just weird. I mean, I guess you, you occasionally get the cabbie that, like that that, <laughs> that won't shut the fuck up, and that's like I, his thing is talking about Towns, but... You know, what I just couldn't other? believe that the cabbie, yeah, the Talons and the cabbie was like, that's one of the thin places. Don't <laughs> yeah. go there. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a shame what they did to this this short story. Um, just, um, you know, not not all of your listeners are going to put the time in to track down this adaptation. So at least in your post about it, just give them a screenshot of the cat. Just show them the cat. <laughs> just, just in case they don't do the homework and track this thing down, they need to see the cat. I think that's a good point. Yeah, for sure. the The good news is that like nobody really saw this thing, so like you could you could make a new one, even if like in the next season of Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone or whatever, somebody could readapt this and it would be completely fresh. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, really ripe for it too, especially now that we've shown that like. Um, that cosmic horror can be done well. It, right. It, I, I saw so many opportunities from this when I was um, when I was going through the story. Uh, you know, it, I think it can be done, and it should be done, and it shouldn't be like, oh, whoops, we failed once at this. No one cares. It, it can be done really well. Yeah, no one's. This is such an obscure adaptation and an obscure short story to begin with that I don't think anyone's like. They're remaking that again. Like no one's. I, I I will be surprised if half of our listeners have even are even aware that this exists. You know. That's why you got to show them the cat. <laughs> the Kano cat. Well, Rob, uh, what are you working on now? This is our part of the show where we invite people to plug whatever they're doing. What do you got? You know, list? I I think probably like um like both of you and like so many of us um my plans for this year were completely upended. And, yes, um, no, indeed. <laughs> you know? So I'm doing things that I, that I wasn't expecting to do this year, and, and um, that's all right. You know, it's it's good to be adaptable. But lately, um, I've been working on some campaigns, um, some 
protest-related campaigns uh, about the upcoming election that are going to be coming mm-hmm. out soon. Very pro-Trump and, and, and pro-police. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Thin, uh, thin blue line. Spirit, the spirit yeah, of I've Nine just, Inch Nails, yes. I've just been mostly just licking boots, like a lot of yeah. Hey, let me ask you a question real quick. <laughs> Do you know if, the, if the, the story about Ted Cruz and Nine Inch Nails is true? I don't know. I only know as much as I've heard uh, that you have. I, I never heard about that one, so... I think I that happened like after your true. tenure with the band. But like yeah, Cruz that was been, later. The story is that Ted Cruz pestered somebody to get on the guest list for a Nine Inch Nails show and then showed up and, and drank all their beer and acted like a fucking asshole backstage, which is a story that Trent Reznor told on, on stage in, in Dallas some years later. Ted Cruz has denied the story, but it's got that ring of truth to it, doesn't it? Like, I can just imagine... Weaselly ass Ted Cruz getting backstage at a concert, drinking beer, trying to be the cool guy. I don't know. I'm riding with Trent on that one. One thing I know about Trent is that he has a lot of great stories from touring and from his life, and he's not one to make them up. He just, you know, he's been through everything and he's got great stories and and he's a great storyteller. So when he says something like that, I believe him way over Ted Cruz. I, uh, I feel like that's definitely a true thing that happened. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So um, you've also been making these these masks. This would probably be a good point for you to to plug those. I've bought one or two of them myself. You've kind of revolutionized the whole fucking mask <laughs> thing, haven't you? Well, well that's uh, – yeah, that's one of those weird directions that this year took me in that, um, that I was not expecting to go. Um, you know, at the beginning of this when suddenly like – big projects that I had lined up got canceled because everything got canceled. Somehow it just ended up that um, I fell into a, a place where I was able to start producing face masks and designing them. And And my impetus for it was people are being so unnecessarily obnoxiously resistant to this basic act of, of care to, the, to yourself and the people around you. So I wanted to embark on this um, idea that it's actually really fun to wear masks. You know, you go to, you go to Trader Joe's dressed as a fucking ninja and it's fun. It's fucking fun. <laughs> you know, there's no reason to be mad about this. It's actually kind of cool, you know? So I've been on this project, um, which also contributes to, um, to charity where we're, we're making masks that are designed to be on one level stylish and on another, another level, just fun. Like every day is Halloween kind of shit, you know? Yeah. So, um, we, we did some with my glitch art that are kind of meant to just be like cool fashion accessories. And then, uh, I started on a line that's based on pop culture monsters, including some Stephen King monsters that's meant to just be like, it's, it's actually really fun to go dressed as, you know, as Jason to the grocery store and, and people talk about it and, and people enjoy it. And it shows people that this is like, something we can all do together and have fun with and don't have to be little bitches about it, you know? <laughs> and where can uh, people find those? Do you have an easily accessible URL you yeah. can recommend? Yes. You can just go to glitchgoods.com and you, you'll find them all there. Yeah. There's a Pennywise one that I saw. There is. And, uh, and I might do a, a special edition Stephen King one for you guys. Oh, that would be sweet. Ooh. Yeah. Like literally Stephen King's, uh, Bottom half of his face, not not his actual face. Uh, his, I'll, I'll leave that. To, I'll pre, leave that to the man himself. But pre before he got his teeth fixed, so you get the <laughs> yes. <teeth in> <laughs> you do one from like 
when he was the band leader in the Shining miniseries. He's got the horrible mustache, but he's also, I think he still has the teeth in, in, in there. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Rob. This was great. I'm, I'm glad I got a, a reason to talk about Crouch End for one hour. Thanks for turning me on to this because it was, it was a pleasure to, to, you know, experience the story for the first time and a journey, I will say, to watch the adaptation. <laughs> Many thanks to Rob Sheridan for joining us. And uh, that mask tease was uh, something else. Is, is there a little something more we can talk about now that we're... We're uh, real close to dropping this up. Yes. By the time this episode goes live, uh, Rob will have placed a new mask in his store, which you can find at glitchgoods.com. And well, all of his face masks are, you know, they're, they're COVID masks, but they've got, you know, famous monsters and what have you on them. This one has the green goblin face from maximum overdrive. And it is a KingCast limited edition that will only be available for the next two weeks through Rob's store. So if you want to look like the truck from Maximum Overdrive while you're being safe and going out in your neighborhood and um, running the gauntlet at your local grocery store, uh, go over there and pick one up right now. That is glitchgoods.com. And they are awesome looking. They should be live by the time uh, this episode goes live. Um but what I've seen of Rob's work so far is is really cool, and I think people are going to like him. I'm going to get one. Yeah, no, it's very exciting. Uh, and uh, like you said, some of his uh, proceeds go to charity as well. Yes. So, yeah, so it's uh, you can feel good about it, and uh, you can also use this as an excuse to well actually all the kids who say that uh, they like your uh, Spider-Man-related mask, and you can say, no, 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 young sir or no, madam. You slap them right in the face, and you say, no. This is about maximum overdrive. Uh, don't actually strike anyone. That would probably, or I mean, you know, do whatever you want with your life, but don't blame us for it. You know, right. we, have, we have no control over you. Legally, we have to say that part. Yeah. If they're uh, not wearing a mask, but, though, open season. I'll say that. Right. Uh, so this is a really busy week for us. Uh, so you just listened to our Crouch End episode, uh, and we have not one, but two more new episodes hitting this week. This Friday, we are dropping our first early access Patreon bonus episode into the main feed. So yes, you can hear it for free. It is a very fun, lengthy chat with Steven Weber, who was the star of Mick Garris's Shining miniseries, as well as Desperation. And he also did that great uh, It audiobook. Mm-hmm. Uh, narration and we cover all that plus many more things every Stephen King thing that Stephen Weber has ever worked on we talk to him about it so it's a solid hour like a tour of everything Stephen Stephen Weber has ever done in the world of Stephen King and he is he is a fantastic interview that guy is a sweetheart and um, I appreciated that he looked back on these projects with uh, what I would consider clear eyes he doesn't sugarcoat anything, and he has some amazing stories to tell along the way. For sure. This Friday as well, for our Patreon followers, we have our next interview going live, and that's mm-hmm. with Mr. Thomas Jane, yes. who, of course, was the star of The Mist, 1922, Dreamcatcher, you face shit weasels. <laughs> it's like that, that <laughs> dude's... Uh, and been, he's not a fan he's of Dreamcatcher either. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we foresee we're we're reaching out to a whole bunch of people who have uh, starred in or made Stephen King movies, and we'll for sure be dropping these interviews with them 
early access into our Patreon, and they'll eventually all make their way onto the main feed as bonus episodes. But our Patreon followers get to hear it first. We also realize that, uh, you know, times are tough and not everybody can spare some extra cash for it. But, you know, if you guys want to help, uh, you can definitely help out by telling your friends and rating, reviewing on iTunes and, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff helps us. Um, and if you can, if you have the means and can afford to, you know, we're trying to make it worth your while over at Patreon. Uh, and it certainly does help. And we very much appreciate our King Cast Quartet. That's true. Also, this is Vespi speaking. And I would like to say that if one of our listeners were to buy uh, Wampler a pool and have that installed in his backyard, he would very much appreciate that. I'm going to have to call my lawyer. You're impersonating an officer, my man. I appreciate you saying all that on my behalf, Eric. I, I would like a pool. That's that's true. I would also like a You're hot You're going to confuse but... people. People won't know what different. I did yes. not say that. We Because <laughs> uh, I want the pool. Damn it. Sound identical. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But yeah, you can visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash thekingcast. All that leaves is announcing the title for next week. I say all that. I have been feel like we've been talking for 45 minutes about all the shit that's actually coming up. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I'll tell them about next week. Next week, uh, we are we are getting around to a title that we've we've had a, a, a fair number of requests for. And that is Stand By Me or The Body, if you're nasty, from um, from different seasons. That is a very good episode. Our guest for that episode is an accomplished director who I'm picking my words carefully, who he's responsible for at least one major horror franchise and is still working in the horror industry and released a horror movie this year. I'll say those are those are your clues to work with. <laughs> I think maybe you'll figure it out that yeah. way. But uh, he is. Uh, I think you made a- it too obvious. I, oh, I really? think they're they're going to figure it out. It's Bronson Pinchot. Yes, it is Bronson Pinchot, and we're very excited, and and we hope you'll enjoy hearing from him on on that episode. It's not Bronson Pinchot. I it's was I was bit, making no. jokes. Well, everybody's a little bit Bronson Pinchot. Mm-hmm. The real friends are the but Bronson Pinchots we met along the way. <laughs> that's correct. Uh, well, I can say that the episode's uh, very good. The movie and the story are very near and dear to my heart, and. I had a lot of fun with this one, and I think it's one of our our better episodes, if I do say so myself. This is one we can all celebrate. We love the story. We love the movie. We love our guest. It's a love fest. You're going to enjoy it. All right. Well, we'll see you next week for that one. See you then, folks. Mm -hmm.